0: This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing.
1: What a weekend of action we just saw in Qatar! The opening round of the 2021 MotoGP season is in the books, and Qatar didn't have to deliver. Welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast, presented by Fly Racing. On this week's show, we're going to look back at the opening race of the year from the LaSalle International Circuit. My name is Steve English, and as ever on the Paddock Pass podcast, I'm joined by Neil Morrison, Adam Wheeler, and David Emmett. Neil, I'll tell you what, it must be tough out in the desert. I heard that the Ritz-Carlton is no longer offering massages in the hotel.
2: <laughs> it's no longer offering massages, and um, the swimming pool is now off-limits for us to swim in. So yes, if everyone could uh, direct their thoughts and prayers to uh, the people currently <laughs> stuck out in Doha, um, that would be greatly appreciated.
1: Yeah, very tough times for you and Adam. Tough times for you as well. You've had to join us on yet another Zoom call. I know how much you love these.
3: Oh, they're brilliant, Steve. Uh, and just in between two uh, two Grand Prix back to back in Qatar with the uh, the evening schedule and a, a publication deadline as well. So, uh, but it's a pleasure to see all your faces um, as usual. I've missed you know Dave and Neil for all of one day. Uh, so it's been it's been with you know some tough withdrawal symptoms, but we'll get through it. We'll get through it.
1: Yeah, we'll get through this together as well. And Dave, uh, I haven't missed your face actually, because we've been busy over the weekend with a new show for our Patreon supporters, where we take a quick look at uh, some of the action during the course of the weekend in the Paddock Notes.
0: Yeah, well, well I have to think of what I think sort of straight away. So um, that's quite um, challenging. So yeah, but it's been fun.
1: Yeah, it was good fun at the weekend. We had two shows, one after qualifying, one after the race. And uh, we we're pretty much straight from the debriefs into record a show. So it really was straight from the horse's mouth. But uh, there was quite a few horses on the show during the course of this weekend. And for me, my moment of the weekend was seeing Johan Zarco's speed down the start-finish straight to be able to set, what was it, 225 miles an hour at something special. But uh, Neil, what about you? What was your moment of the Qatar Grand Prix? Uh,
2: I think my moment had to be the reigning world champion, Joan Mir's fight back from... Um well, I think he was outside the top 10 at one point point. Um, and his late blitz through the, through the pack, um, eventually got grabbing second um, momentarily before um, cruelly being demoted on the front straight back down to fourth. I think uh, Mir rode like a um, like champion in that, in that instance. And um, yeah, I think possibly showed why he is the favorite for the championship going forward.
1: And uh, Dave, what about you? What was your moment of the weekend?
0: I think my moment of the weekend was on the grid just before the start when Franco Morbidelli realised that his um, uh, his hole shot device was stuck in the down position. So he knew he was going to have to basically race a chopper all uh, all, uh, all week, and he he did creditably. He didn't like give up. He didn't sort of come into the pits and give up. Um, uh, basically, what happens with the with the hole shot devices? It just lowers the rear. There's a little piston. Uh, uh, attached to the shock linkage and it uh, uh, lowers the rear, um, it drops the ride height. And um, yeah, that made it very difficult for Morbidelli, but he still, you know, the fact that he finished at all, I think, is, uh, it, is a credit to his grit and determination.
1: Adam, what about you?
3: Yeah, Neil kind of uh, took my point there because Juan Mir for me really stood out. Uh, you know, of, of course, Mavic Minales' performance was uh, the, the headline grabber. But other than that, Steve, I mean, I'm I'm impressed by Peko Bagnaia. I mean, of course, he had a fantastic Saturday, used the the Ducati to you know it's the, the full strength of the Desmosedici. But um, I think we're seeing the maturation of a, a rider that showed great potential in flashes last year. Uh, obviously, had that unfortunate knee injury, but now um, you know he's going to get a huge confidence boost from that result. I wouldn't be surprised if he's uh, going to be the, the leading Ducati uh, come on well come Sunday night again.
1: We'll start off with Yamaha, but just before I jump into that, I want to ask you one question then about Petco, because last year we saw that he'd have these moments of real heights. You think to some of his races last year, he was superb. And then he goes to the next round and really struggle. What did you see this weekend that would sort of give you a bit of confidence that he might find a little bit more consistency?
3: I think you are just seeing the development of a rider who came into the class in his first year as reigning Motor 2 world champion. Uh, you, know, you can probably compare him to the plights of like Luca Marini, Bastianini, uh, Jorge Martín this year. You know, somebody really needs to learn the ropes. Um, just the mentality of the kid uh, is, is something of a perfectionist, um, absolutely dedicated to his craft. I think uh, last year was the injury with his knee uh, was a big setback. Uh, we maybe could have seen some of this form earlier. But uh, he's, he started the year really how we expected. And, you know, for an Italian in an Italian factory team, you think that comes with a load of pressure. And we've seen it weigh on someone experience experienced as Andrea De Vizioso in the past. But uh, it doesn't seem to be, you know, so much of a burden for him. I'm quite excited to see what he can do, actually. And uh, with Jack Miller next to him, of course, uh, you know, his former teammate, uh, there's no mystery there. It's a case of uh, where, where where are the limits for Papagniaia?
1: Yeah, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how he develops over the course of the year. But like I said, let's start off with Yamaha because for me, that was one of the big storylines just to be able to see the differences between the Yamahas, David, because we saw Vinales really strong all the way through, obviously struggled at the start again, and that was despite spending pretty much all the practice sessions doing practice starts as well. But it seemed that he was a lot calmer about things. It seemed that he was able to build himself into the race, be decisive when he had to be making moves, And this was the Vinales that we all expected whenever he went from Suzuki to Yamaha. This is the guy that, you know, when we've seen him at his best is just fantastic. And a bit like with Bagnaya, it's when we see him when he's not at his best where the problems are. And it's those bad days have always caused him in the past.
0: Uh, Yeah, exactly. I mean, the thing about uh, Vinales, what impressed me about Vinales this race is particularly that he had a, a plan B. He didn't panic when the start went wrong. Uh, and he did during the test. He did, I don't know, some, uh, getting on for fifty or sixty different starts. Uh, and again, you saw that during practice as well. During free practice, uh, every time he left the pit, um, he, uh, you know, basically burned the clutch, trying to uh, trying to do starts. Sometimes successfully, sometimes not so successfully. Um, it, it didn't get a fantastic start. Got swallowed up. Uh, but just by this time. Sat back uh, and started picking people off and rode really, really well, uh, rode really aggressively as well. Um, the, some of the passes were just sort of superb. What impressed me most, I think, was the fact that he could actually pass people at turn 10 rather than turn six. Normally on a Yamaha, uh, you need to pass at turn six because then you've got quite a lot of track to get, you know, put a gap between yourself and whoever's following you so that you can keep the lead down the front straight. He passed a couple of people at Turn 10 and still managed to maintain that, um, uh, you know, keep a gap. That was impressive. But just like the Yamaha for Vinales worked perfectly. And what I found really slightly worrying uh, for Yamaha is the fact that, um, sure, Vinales rode a perfect race and one. Uh, Quartararo finished fifth which is a good result but he still struggled with rear grip and Valentina Rossi went went backwards and I wrote this in a column for um, uh, for, for Adams uh, on track off-road this uh, this month uh, that has to be a concern the bike has always been really really finicky with setup last year the problem was it was either brilliant or it was nowhere and uh, it looks again just from this race Yamaha are still in the situation. This
3: is, you know, it's either the best bike on the grid or or they're in real trouble. I think to simplify things, you know, maybe too much, but LaSalle is kind of like, you know, an inline four circuit. You know, we see the Yamahas, like Dave says, when they're on song, are almost unbeatable. The same with the Suzuki's, which, you know, in the end proved to be a competitive package in the first race. Uh, The Ducati's, uh, you know, had that, obviously that ridiculous straight line speed, but then the Hondas and the KTMs were also, I know, again, there were various other mitigating factors, but they were not really in the game. Um, so that's what's frustrating really about having all these eight, eight consecu- well, not consecutive days, but eight days full of riding in one circuit. You know, we're seeing very much like a, a one flavor of MotoGP. And that's uh, a little bit difficult to reconcile after the first race. And it's, it's hard to, again, as Dave mentioned in his piece, to, to pull too many conclusions.
1: Uh, Neil, one flavour, you only have one flavour, what ice cream you get?
3: <laughs>
2: Is this a trick question? Um, ripple, there are no wrong so...
1: answers in this, Neil.
3: Oh, there's plenty of wrong answers. Ach, shut up.
2: <laughs> yeah, raspberry Ripple.
1: Oh,
3: God. oh, no, that's a terrible answer. Christ. That's an, but right
1: we're right, we'll move on from Neil. We're not going to ask him about Vinales because that was just such a bad answer. So um, Adam, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, Neil, what what was your thoughts about Maverick over the course of the weekend?
2: Um, yeah, I thought it was a, it was a great performance. Um, just to echo um, some things that Dave said, um, I think when we got to turn two of the race, everyone was thinking, oh God, here we go again. This is just another typical Maverick performance because, okay, you got swamped by the Ducatis going into turn one, but then so did everyone else. It was almost laughable how superior they were off the line. Um, but then I think three other bikes came past them, um, including Rossi, Paul, and Alicia Spargaro. Um, but then what really impressed me was that he started making moves instantly. Like, yes, he got a bit duffed up at turn one, but the response was pretty much immediate. He started making moves on the first lap and I think he would regain six or sorry, three positions to sit sixth at the end of lap one. And then his race craft there from there was just, it uh, was fantastic. He stayed behind quarter um, and Quadraro dragged him up to the Ducatis. And then, you know, as David mentioned, his his aggression was just uh was just there. And it's performances like this, where you think, why do we not see this more often from Maverick? Because he is one of the more talented riders on the grid, but um it's so infrequent that we actually see this. So um, but you know, I think there I wrote um also to plug uh something that I've written for Adams magazine. I wrote a little bit about this. You know, there are a lot of Things that have changed in Maverick's personal life, that have changed within Yamaha over uh, the last four or five months, and um, that would or could lead you to think that perhaps this is going to be a different Maverick Vinales this year. However, with Maverick, I've you know we've all been in the game long enough to know that we can't suddenly say that this is going to be a rider that's going to win the championship from here because you know I could just as easily see Maverick finishing maybe eight next weekend, you know, if things don't go for him. But uh, in isolation, um, this was a, an exceptional performance and probably his best performance in MotoGP.
3: Maybe it's a, a good sign. You know, he's only ever been on the podium once in the premier class, other than last weekend, uh, and that was a victory in 2017 in in LaSalle. And I mean, I just looked it up now on on MotoGP.com, and that season 2017, he had three wins in the first six rounds and was on the podium four times in six rounds. So if Maverick uh, is you know looking to follow that slice of history then uh he's, he's doing well so far
1: and uh, david just uh, when you look at vinales the vinales we saw this weekend whether it was just in the garage or on the debriefs he talked an awful lot about the fact that he could ride this bike very differently he was able to carry huge amounts of corner speed that's obviously always been the strength of the yamaha but for a yamaha rider to say you are able to carry huge amounts of corner speed it must have been even more than normal for for him to actually come out and say it so often
0: yeah, I mean, he had a lot of praise for Cal Crutchlow saying, you know, like, Cal rides the same as me, um, and he's been useful in sort of helping develop the bike. And, you know, most of that is just sort of like figuring out setup and figuring out uh, how to get the bike to do what Maverick wants to do. So that's definitely an uh, uh, definitely advantage for him. So, yeah, the bike worked perfectly. He found grip, and the most impressive thing was he found grip um, all the way to the end of the race. Uh, uh, we saw Fabio Quartararo uh, and Valentino Rossi both suffered. You know, the, the, the rear tyre dropped off a cliff, which was one of the problems uh, in the past with the, with the MR. Uh, not for Maverick. Maverick was still really, really fast um, all the way to the end of the race.
2: Yeah, I think it was interesting. Um, you know, when you mentioned the the work that Crutchlow's done, um, you obviously give Cal a big shout out for that. Um and, you know, it's probably worth saying that Cal wouldn't be your archetypal Yamaha rider. He is not the Jorge Lorenzo, he isn't a Fabio Quartararo. you know, he isn't silky smooth, he's a bit aggressive on the bike, and I think Maverick's like that as well. Um and it was interesting to hear Fabio on Saturday talk about this twenty twenty-one Yamaha, about how you have to ride it, and it's not just let everything flow and try and almost slow things down in an order to go fast. He said, you really have to wrestle the bike and be aggressive with it to get the best from it. And I think that, um, could really suit Vinales, you know, because, um, I don't know how often we heard him talking about needing to smooth out his style change his riding style over the last or the previous four years. And we have to say he did that with, with fairly limited success. So maybe this does This is another thing that points to, um, you know, this being a bike that is more to Maverick's liking. But again, um, we are at Qatar. We've only seen the 2021 bikes in Qatar. Um, And, um, yeah, I think we need to wait a couple of more rounds before we can definitively say this is a real step forward.
1: Well, what about Quattro then as well, Neil? Because obviously when Vinales is winning a race like this, we saw Fabio was pretty fast all the way through the weekend he qualifies in the front row with a grade he finished all right he was able to come away with decent points but uh, it just never quite clicked for him the same way as it did for Vinales during the race
2: yeah yeah I think you know Fabio Rhodes an exceptional first half of the race Um, he was really aggressive making some great overtakes as well I think um, there was one instance when he got he overtook Miller Miller repassed him on the straight, and then Fabio just released the brakes around the outside of Miller going into turn one. And you thought, wow, this guy's riding really confidently. Um, takes a lot of balls to do that. Um, but um, yeah, was kind of at a loss to explain why his tire went off kind of mid-race. Um, but you know, I think um he did also mention that a year ago, if he had these kind of problems in a race, there's no way he would have finished fifth. So the fact that he managed to salvage some pretty good points from a a disappointed situation um, is good. But yeah, it was strange that um, that he was kind of beset by rear tire issues and, and Maverick Vinales wasn't. And he seemed kind of at a loss to explain that.
1: And uh, Adam, just one for you, because this was obviously a weekend where we saw Ducati came into it, having been so strong during the course of the test. We expected that they were going to be able to carry it forward, qualify in pole position with Paco. Obviously the opening couple of hundred metres, we see four Ducatis out in front. Was this also a race where Ducati having their problems with tyre life maybe muddies the water a little bit? We didn't see a true picture of them. Maybe it's making Vinales and Yamaha look a little bit stronger than than they would have ordinarily been.
3: Well, that kind of ties in, Steve, to, to one of the big observations I took from Sunday, and that is that, you know, Michelin... The, you know, the, the, the tire allocation just seemed to work for some people and was an absolute disaster for others. Uh, a case in point being the KTMs where, you know, they qualified low down on the grid. Uh, their race pace was not actually too shabby through free practice. Um, not a lot was expected of them, but Brad Binder and Miguel Oliveira were kind of flying on, on the edge of the top 10. After the race, uh, speaking to the media, I mean, Oliveira was, uh, he was seething really about the tire allocation. Um, just to quickly explain to people, uh, Michelin this year uh, have removed their old soft tire and they've replaced it with the 2020 medium tire, which is now the new soft. So Olivera's complaint was we have two options, basically, because the soft or the hard, because the new medium just doesn't work for them at LaSalle. So there was like a, you know, the, the riders were almost stuck between two extremes. Um, and in the end, the soft tire, which the majority chose, this would not last a 22 lap base distance um so Michelin claimed in their press release after the race they were actually quite pleased with the performance considering how the wind had blown a lot of crap across the dust and it was actually m- maybe more abrasive than usual in La Salle but uh, you know some of the riders were you know rather irritated let's say I mean Oliver was explaining that you know KTM spent the better part of six months designing and improving and trying to modify a motorcycle for a specific type of rubber and then when that suddenly ejected at the start of the new season, then it gives it throws their orientation somewhat. So, Ducati, I think you know, Jack Miller had a, a deteriorating right side of his rear tyre. Uh, for KTM, I think it was the front tyre. Uh, for Quattararo, I think it was the front as well. I can't, I can't remember now, but uh, you know, the, those tyre issues are something that the teams are going to have quite a few headaches to solve for, for the second Grand Prix. And uh, David, just to
1: talk about issues that have to be solved obviously we saw that at the Patronus Yamaha team there was quite a few issues you mentioned that one of your moments of the weekend or the standout things from the weekend was Franco's right despite having the whole shot device engaged for the whole race
0: uh, well yeah but I mean that's just that's just one of those things and it's the uh, the increasing complexity of these bikes you know so you've got all of these devices on the bikes uh, because you want to uh, find ways to improve your performance but you know everything that you add is a uh, can possibly go wrong, and when it does go wrong, then you're really stuck, and that's definitely what happened, what happened with Morbidelli. Um, I think mean, Quateraro and uh, uh, and Rossi both had problems with the rear tire. Rear tire life just dropped off a cliff. Um, it's uh, it you know that that's just it, it, it's just one of those things that Qatar Qatar is just it, it can it, bad for that, and I think I think some people were complaining um well, I wouldn't say unfairly about Michelin because it's it's absolutely right. Everyone used the uh, soft front, soft rear. Um, that's not really why Michelin was bought in, um, and you know, no one could really make the could make the medium front uh, work uh, particularly during the race. So it made it, it made little sense. But um, uh, it, other people m- managed to go fast enough, and it's always the people who couldn't go fast who. Uh, end up complaining about tyres.
2: Just to add something that you said there about Morbidelli, Dave, I don't know if you saw, I think it was the interview he did with, um, with Dorna on Sunday evening, but um, there were a few slightly barbed comments towards Yamaha um, after the race. And obviously, it was a massively disappointing result. I'm sure Franco was going into that race thinking he had a chance of winning it. Um, and then when he saw Vinales win it, it was probably even more um, galling because... He thought, well, I had that potential. Um, but uh, he said something along the lines of, you know, I, I hope Yamaha can fix this problem for me for the next weekend. Uh, I know that I'm not really high on their priority list. And if, if a rider's kind of making those noises at the first race of a new season, um, it doesn't, I would say, bode well. Um, because, you know... It, Frank was going to be on a, a basically a two-year-old bike all this year, and it's not really going to get much better for him. So, um, I think that that was quite interesting considering. You know, we were all tipping Franco to be a major championship player this year.
3: But you know, what Dave mentioned as well about small gains. I mean, the I, I think the pressure now in MotoGP must be higher than I can ever remember it. I mean, Dave, you wrote this week that it was the second closest. Uh, top 10, I think, of, of all time. Um, you know, so the, the closest is still 2018, so two years earlier. Um, for riders who are suffering with tire wear and problems, and that's, um, that's still an, a remarkable achievement, really. Um, and you have people like Ducati using, uh, you know, aerodynamics, new uh, kind of aero, um, even kind of modifications to the rear tire uh, duct, um, all those little things just to gain marginal tenths of a second um it's it's a it's a big pressure cooker and you know if you have somebody like morbidelli who's you know has a a technical disadvantage we can say from the off then um you know it really must be hard to swallow that
0: yeah i mean the marginal gains to come back to ducati ducati you've got all this aero but then what happens the wind turns uh, uh, you know the, the wind direction changes uh, for the race, it's coming. It's a headwind. They can't use all of the aero. They have to take the the, the front wheel covers off. Um, they don't get the advantage. They lose the uh, the, the top speed advantage. I mean, uh, you know, drag increases with uh, the square of speed. And uh, that means that the faster you go, you know, the, the faster you go, the, the more difficult it is to go faster because you've got more and more drag. Um, and so, you know, the difference between 350 and 360 is a is is a massive amount. Um, uh, the amount of drag there that it changes a lot. So you really lose that top end the, that top end advantage. So all of these things, you spend they spent the two days pr- uh, um, really working around using that top speed uh, uh, down the front straight, and then what happens is the Yamahas and the Suzukis have better drive out of corners and the, the ducatis never get to use their top speed which is which only really comes into its own at the end of the straight and it was if, if Juan may hadn't if, if Juan may had got better drive out of the final corner then the, the suzukis would have been third or the yeah, ducatis would have been third and fourth rather than uh, rather than second and third
3: I mean, it's marginal gains again, Dave, but I mean, I know Mir as well took a different line into the last corner, but he lost two positions. Uh, for Suzuki, very visually, it was a case of uh, inferiority to the Ducati top speed, and he's lost, what, six, seven championship points. So it's, it's you know, any little kind of um, modification that actually works, especially in a, a track as kind of, um, you know, particular, as you, as you could say, as LaSalle, it's, it's, it's a goldmine.
1: Yeah, and I think um, we actually had a question in from Tom Shute just about that. And uh, Dave, you actually managed to answer it there. But I think for me, one of the things that was interesting was obviously we saw Mir made a mistake and he's miles away from his apex in that final corner. But even with that, just that sheer helicopter shot. And uh, yeah, you've got Mir exit in the last corner badly. So it compounds everything. But we just saw just how much of a train the Ducatis were going to be anyway. And I think it was it was one of those moments where you do still see just that kind of advantage that they have.
0: Yeah, I think it was Jan Zarko who said in the press conference that, uh, you know, their advantage was, uh, you know, 4th, 5th, 6th, right? Uh, the, the very top speed, that was where they were, you know, much faster than everyone else. Um, but they lost out because the MRs and the Suzukis were much better in sort of 2nd and 3rd and 4th. So they were, they were getting out of the corner quicker. And the, the the headwind meant that they that getting out the corner quicker was much more important than um, the speed at the end of the strike. at the end of the straight.
1: Yeah, and Dave, just to move on to Ducati for you, what was the big thing for this weekend? Because obviously we saw Peckle really strong in qualifying. We saw Jack didn't live up to the billing that everyone had for him, and uh, Zarko was just really good on used tires all the way through the weekend. Like on Saturday night when we were talking on Paddock Notes, we did mention that Zarco was one of the riders to watch. And for me, it was mostly just because the odds were long on him. But like for Zarco, like the whole way through this race, he makes a good start. He's running inside the top three all the way and he's able to come away with 20 points. This was a really good, solid performance where he doesn't put a foot wrong.
3: Did you bet on him, Steve?
1: I did. You and did? I'll tell you what, I uh, I took the payout on him which was whenever he went up to second and I was offered seven to one on him. So I said, yeah, I'll take the payout on that. And it was lucky I did because I wouldn't have won otherwise.
3: Is that why you had a full chicken on the barbecue then? that night? I'll
1: tell you what, I had a, I had a shoulder of lamb on the barbecue that night. I needed every penny I could find.
2: Two cans of Coke.
1: Two, two <laughs> cans of Coke, a shoulder of lamb and a few biscuits. It was an ideal one, but I had no raspberry <laughs> nail. I actually splashed out <laughs> all the way and a bit of Ben and Jerry's.
0: Yeah to come back to DK I think um Joanne Zarco, as you said, like we talked about this on the Paddock Notes, um, Joanne Zarco, you saw this on Saturday that he really, he, his race pace was really good. His pace in FP4 was really, really good. Um, the weird thing about Qatar is the, really the only session that you can use to judge anyone by is FP4 because uh, the 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 daytime sessions, FP1 and FP3, are a complete waste of time. Uh, everyone's, you know, riding a second, a, a lap, slower you can only use it maybe for a little bit of setup but you've got no idea what people are at, what what people's pace is actually like you can't tell what their race pace is going to be you can't test tires um and it was really clear that zarko was good and zarko was just he kept a level head as well you know it was just a really really sensible solid strong race um i, mean, I think zarko could compete for the championship were it not for the fact that he is the number one rider in Pramac and the number one rider in Pramac's job is to test new stuff for the factory team. So, uh, you know, there's going to be a few races where he's given something and it'll completely ruin his race, but it'll be really, really valuable for uh, for Ducati. But yeah, impressive. And yeah, strong by Peko as well. An and outstanding race. But, you know, the thing with Pecco is you have to wait until he gets to a place where the the front tire is cold and he can't get heat into
2: it. Yeah, yeah. Just like to back up what you said. Dave, like super impressive stuff from Zarko, and probably what was most impressive is the other Ducatis kind of suffered a drop. You know, Miller obviously fell away from mid race um, and dropped down in the top 10 Um uh, was leading for a long time, but once Vinales came past, he kind of had a bit of a drop and uh, I think it was around lap 15. He said he wasn't able to, to keep that pace and Vinales and um, Sarko, sorry, just uh, stayed, stayed solid really the whole way. Um, it was a really impressive thing for him. And, you know, everyone was talking about the, the top speed, um, the, the headwind um, having a factor in that, but I just want to want to ask, like, I mean, um, obviously, that was a factor in Ducati's top speed in the race not being as apparent. Um, and also the fact that, you know, Yamaha and Suzuki were doing so well in second and third gear out of the final corner. But I mean, fuel consumption is notoriously um, high at this track. And um, I don't know, I just heard... Simon Crafer on the commentary mentioned that that was probably a factor in why the speed wasn't so high. Also, I spoke to Piero Taramasso, who just happens to be staying in the same hotel. Um, I saw him at the, um, at the at the lift on Sunday morning. I was asking him about tire life and he was saying that, um, you know, I think he thought that um, that uh, fuel consumption was going to have a bit of a bearing in the race. So, yeah, I was just wondering whether you kind of thought that that was perhaps uh, one of the, the contributor factors to Ducati maybe losing their edge on the straight somewhat.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important, Neil, that you corrected yourself from saying the swimming pool there and you met him in the lift. <laughs> but uh, I, I have to say that's a really interesting point from Crafar because, David, you just mentioned about how downforce and drag square with speed. So if you're having that much more drag, it's taking that much more effort to try and get your top speed, that much more effort to try and propel you down the straight. And MotoGP bikes can be on a knife edge at the best of times for fuel. We've seen it plenty of times where riders have ran out of fuel And this would sort of play into why the advantage was so much less pronounced, because even if it is a case of that extra drag causing the difference, for it to have been this significant, maybe there is something into what Grapevar is saying.
0: Uh, I mean, there definitely is. As far as I know, uh, Qatar is not the worst of circuits for fuel consumption. There are much, much worse ones. Um, In fact, Guzano is a bad one, even though it's not a very, very, very high one, but you're doing lots and lots of hard accelerating. The thing with Qatar is you can actually carry uh, carry speed so you're not having to do, you know, it's the accelerating from, from low gear which really kills it. But um, it would make a really big difference at top speed because, as you say, you know, the, the, the drag is that much higher at very, very high speed. Uh, so you're wanting to pump as much fuel in there as possible to get those extra kilometers an hour. Um, and when you are a bit lean, then it's not going to – or when you have to make sure you – Cross the line at the end of the race when you can actually do 22 laps, then you can't just uh, uh, just dump fuel into the into the cylinders at the end of the at the end of the uh, at the end of the straight just to go faster. So, yeah, I think it was definitely a factor. I think it was a combination of several things which really um, really sort of pulled the claws of the uh, of the Ducati.
2: It was a fast race as well. I mean, um, I think it was just a little slower than the, the, the race record here at Qatar, which was um, from Lorenzo. Strangely enough, in uh, Midland's first race back as the, the sole tyre supplier in t- 2016. Um, but I think it was eight seconds faster than the last time MotoGP raced here. So, you know, it was a fast, relatively fast pace um, by recent standards.
0: Um, we, didn't the... have, we didn't have, 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 have Dovichioso to slow the whole thing up.
2: Exactly. Yes. And it does make you wonder, you know, obviously, Zarko rode brilliantly. Uh, I think Banyai rode a good race as well. I think Jack will be a bit disappointed with, with how things went. Obviously, we, we expected a bit more than ninth place, but it does make you wonder, you know, having someone with the experience of just brilliant race management, you know, that, that, was, a, that was a race tailor-made for Davizioso, you feel.
3: Now, you mentioned like uh, Jack Miller, obviously there, and Dave, you've written this week that one of your highlights from the race was uh, Paul Aspargaro's performance. I was just wondering what the three of you kind of made of that. I mean, eighth position. I mean, Jack, the link with Miller is that, you know, he said on Sunday evening that the, a couple of crashes he had had throughout the weekend ebbed away his confidence. And Paul had also spoken about that. Um, you know, the slip-offs he had had on the Honda made him a little bit more nervous than he already was. I mean, his body language and his demeanour throughout the weekend, I wouldn't be surprised if he got to Sunday and had a big exhale, uh, you know, just when he got back into the pit box. Um, but I think that the eighth position, like you pointed out in your text, Dave, is, was um pretty, pretty solid start, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, it's a, I mean, you'd only really understand what a motorbike is capable of when you get into a race um you can ride around uh, you can do a lot of testing you can uh, do a lot of practice you can sort of figure all sorts of things out about how to ride it um but you've got to get off the line i think one of the things which uh, paul said that he struggled were, with was the feeling of the bike with a full tank off the line uh, on the first lap um again that's something you can try in practice but it's not the same you know you're not you don't have the same adrenaline going through your veins you don't have uh, 20 other bikes around you and you're trying to sort of slot the bike into uh, an open space to make progress so uh, that was a huge huge lesson for him um, but then you it's in the race where you discover your level and I think uh, Paul definitely discovered his level he found that it was actually better than he than he. Expected, Um, and to finish, what is it, less than six seconds off the winner, uh, in what, uh, as Neil said, you know, the second fastest race that there's been at Qatar. That is really, really impressive. That um, uh, also, uh, you know, behind his brother on the Aprilia, I think those the 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 fact that those two finished together uh, is really is really really impressive. It's really really good.
2: Uh, Yeah, and um, I think he said. Paul said at the start of the race, he got um, lifted up by Mir when Mir was overtaking him. I think he lost three seconds or thereabouts because he kind of had to run, had to pick up his bike and and maybe run off uh, track just a little. Um, So he was saying that when you look at it, he finished 5.9 seconds off Vinales. Uh, If you take away the time he lost with Mir, you know, over the course of the rest of the race, it was a two seconds difference to the race winner. So, I mean, in your first race for Repsol Honda, that's not bad going, I would say.
1: Yeah, and I thought Paul did really well. Actually, on Sunday for when me and David were doing the paddock notes, I actually had him down as my big winner because it really did come out of the blue in a lot of ways. I thought that, you know, Paul obviously went very well during the test. He went all right on Friday, but by the time we got to qualifying, it looked like he was struggling a bit. He had a few crashes and then suddenly we went into the race, and I didn't really expect too much from him, particularly after we saw Nakagami crashes off early, and it just looks like it's going to be another tough race for Honda. You know, Bradle was struggling as well, and you know I I really didn't think Paul was going to come good. And then as you're looking at the live timing as the race wears on, you see actually, you know, Paul's pace is looking pretty good. He's closing up on that group in front of him, and I thought he did really well. And uh, you know, I thought it was a very impressive ride from him. I thought that it was a good comparison to Jack because it looked like Paul was able to really manage his race very well, whereas I, obviously Jack struggled all the way through it. And it was one of those ones where I think we looked into this weekend thinking about the test probably a bit too much. And um, we thought, you know, from what Jack had done during the test that he was going to be right there or thereabouts. And we didn't really see the warning signs during the practice sessions where, you know, we thought maybe he's keeping his powder dry. Maybe something's going to turn good for him. And then you know Paul was the opposite. Where you're looking at his times and you're thinking, oh, he's struggling a bit. And then he actually came good by the end of the weekend.
3: Can we also can I can I also just point out you know our friend Cormac GP and friend of the podcast uh, that Paul finished twelve positions ahead of Alex Marquez. Uh, so my ten euro bet for two thousand and twenty one is looking pretty solid uh, at the moment. Love you, Cormac.
1: Is that all that motivated you to ask about Paul?
3: says the man who put a bet on and Zarco. I want to know who you're betting on for this next Grand Prix, Steve. You know, I might have to follow.
1: I'll tell you what, I, I did spend quite a lot of time looking at it over the course of the weekend. And uh, I think I was like everyone else. I, I kept an eye on what Chris Pike was putting up on Twitter. It turns out that everyone was very unaware that uh, just putting stuff, on a sheet of paper did actually help you to make some money, but uh, you know, Chris has uh, let that cat out of the bag. So definitely if bet three, six, five are looking at Chris's account, just uh, don't, uh, don't look into it in too much detail.
3: Yeah. The next time we do the paddock pass podcast, I think Steve will be full from some Royal pheasant. he's put on the barbecue after his latest series of winnings. So uh, Steve English, everybody follow him on Twitter and uh, make, 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 make a fortune. A yeah, uh, lot of NASCAR. Be honest,
1: and, uh, I, I did. Uh, I did quite well in the Moto Two race as well. So you know it was a, a decent weekend I made more money from my gambling than I did from anything I rode at the weekend. Anyway, that's for sure. But uh, when we come back after the break, that's whenever we're going to really be able to dive into the other manufacturers. We still haven't touched on Suzuki. We haven't talked really about John Muir, the world champion, his ride through to uh, finish inside the top four, and then we also have a really impressive ride from Elisei Stagro on the Aprilia.
0: Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest-performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on- and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021.
1: Welcome back to the Paddock Pass Podcast, presented by Fly Racing. We haven't talked really about it yet, but uh, Juan Mear's ride was really impressive, and uh, I know Neil, you picked it as your moment of the weekend. His recovery, but what was the real basis of that recovery? Because he was struggling in the practice sessions, and you know, as usual in the qualifying session, wasn't really able to get the most out of that package.
2: Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, it was looking at some points like uh, it could have been a, a difficult week, difficult weekend as a whole for for Mear. Um, he didn't really qualify so well. Um, back in the fourth row, no great surprises there. Bit of disappointment, um, and what was strange was to hear him complain about um, a lack of feeling that he had with the front. Um, said that the front felt like it was going to close when he was, um, you know, pushing. Um, and and you know, the start of the race wasn't great for him. I mean, you know, I think he dropped one or two positions off the line, and um, and just took some time to get going. But it was just one of those situations that the the kind of the setup came to him um and you know alex Rins made a bit of a push before Mir and ended up losing his tire uh, towards the end and Mir, well you know he was basically one corner away from timing it to absolute perfection um but i just thought there was like such swagger in his uh in his show and it was almost as if the the further the race went on the more he came to understand you know okay right. I'm, I'm quite good at this. You can just see him kind of growing in confidence. And what I loved about him, you know, the same could be said about many of his performances last year, but when he arrives at someone in front, there's no sitting behind the person for two laps and, and trying to understand whether strong, whether weak. He just goes for it. You know, there's no hesitation in him moving forward. Um, he's just very decisive. And yes, he might have got his calculations wrong overtaking Zarko with two corners to go. And because he said if he had stayed behind him, maybe then he wouldn't have lost speed. Um, and he, he might have got third, but, you know, ifs and buts and whatnot. And you can't criticise the world champion for um, at least going for uh, an extra position when I was there. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was great. I think um, it bodes pretty well for Mir this year um, because he rescued a tough weekend with a, a really good fourth place. It could have so easily been second. And, you know, the comeback was... Uh, a thing of beauty. I think it was just a, a great um, display of, of riding on used tyres and tyre conservation and a great display of overtaking.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the world champion really showed up, um, which is exactly what you've got to do if you want to defend your title. Um, apparently, what, what, John Muir said was they made a change which he wouldn't tell us what the change was Uh, but they'd been trying something on Friday and Saturday which they'd done at the test and it was sort of using some new parts and then on Saturday night they sat down and looked at, um, it it wasn't working they sat down and looked at some old data from from races last year and then went back to something which they used last year and that worked Uh, which I think is a testament to just how good last year's bike was so yeah, it it really worked for the Again, tyres were outstanding throughout the, throughout the race. It was really Juan Mir's uh, strong point. Um, and he came away with a deserved fourth place and he probably deserved more and was a bit unlucky not to get more.
3: Yeah, I completely agree, Dave. I mean, it was a champion's performance. I mean, I love the fact that he said afterwards, you know, it was the first race, it's the time to take a risk. I mean, there's a little bit of a cavalier attitude, um, you know, from a guy you'd think would be under pressure to to defend, I'll say in a number one plate, but he's obviously not using it. Um, you know, and from from what, what we've seen at LaSalle, it's, uh, you know, you would have expected Alex Rins maybe to have been the, the superior Suzuki uh, in the race, but, you know, Rins had rear tire problems from, I think, lap six, he said, uh, which was a, a little bit of a surprise. Um, but I think, you know, I can't remember which one of us said it in the preseason podcast, but Suzuki's uh, tendency to mess up Friday and Saturday and not get higher up on the grid uh, again, was an Achilles heel. Uh, until they sort them out, it's, it's, uh, it's something that's going to mean Joan Mir is going to have very busy races rather than you know a, a performance like Maverick or or at least a stress-free performance near, near the front.
1: Yeah, if it was something sensible said on a pre-season MotoGP show, it was probably actually by Simon Craffar when he joined us. But uh, I, I do think that the one thing that I found really interesting with it was, was that Mir never really looked like, like he was particularly bad over the weekend. It looked like he was in that sort of eighth, ninth, tenth range and then you expect him to make a step during the course of the race. But it was the fact that he was only, you know, half a tenth slower than Vinales on average over the course of this race. He's only a second behind him. You know, it wasn't like, you know, he he was massively behind the race leader whenever he was coming through at the end of the race. You know, it, it felt like if there was another couple of laps, he he might have put himself into a good position to catch him. Whereas Rins, who was only, you know, a second, two seconds back from Mir, just never looked like being able to really bring himself into that fight. And Ed, you mentioned it there about losing that rear grip after only half dozen laps, and that was obviously the deciding factor. But I think, Neil, this kind of shows just how much of a knife edge everyone's on in MotoGP at the minute because, you know, we hail Juan Mears right, and we say, you know, so close to being able to pick up those 20 points. He was only two seconds in front of Rins, who will all say, you know, he struggled a bit, and it's a bit disappointing that he could only finish in sixth.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, we've mentioned it um, just in this episode, how things are on an edge. But another impressive thing about Mir's racecraft and tyre conservation was there there was a point in the early stage of the race when he was basically with Rins and Rins started gapping him and um, made his way onto the back of the front group. And Mir basically just let him go. You know, he he could have basically um, gone with him and got a bit overexcited, but he had the sort of know how to understand that doing that was sort of beyond him at that moment, and doing that would destroy his tires in and end so you know the temptation to try and go with your teammate whenever he's gapping you um in the first part of the first race of the season must be overwhelming, but he had that presence of mind, that maturity, that thinking on the bike to to understand that um okay, this is the pace I've got to run to, in order to be strong at the end so um yeah, it was um. It was really impressive. And, yeah, you know, Mir, oh, sorry, Rins was also looking pretty good at one point. Um, but, yeah, didn't quite just uh, get it done. You know, like Quarteraro, like Miller. Um, yeah, he had to basically put up with um, his teammate, classed him a bit.
0: But that's, that. I mean, it was a typical Rins, race. It was a typical, it was exactly what you would expect. You know, um, uh Rins got overexcited, uh, pushed too hard too early, used up his tyres and paid the price. Uh, Juan Mir had the patience, understood that a race is 22 laps, knew that the uh, the tyre management was going to be crucial, was going to be really really important, uh, and ended up uh, you know nearly taking second place. So it was just, I mean, Alex Rins is a brilliant rider, and it was a it was a good ride, but he just went too hard too early. Um, uh, Maybe because it is the first race. That's the other thing. The first race, paper are always uh, so much more hyped up than they are sort of midway through the season. Everyone is so excited. Everyone is so... uh, uh, They really do try and win win the championship in the first race of the the season. Um, And I think Rins did that and Mir understood, okay, you know, we've got another 19 or 18 races um, and let's take it step by step, see how uh, how far we can go and do, do, see what we can get out of it, wait for the end of the race and, and he really, really, you know, benefited from that.
1: Yeah, well, Dave, let's switch gears from that mentality of having to try and take the long play for the full season, thinking about 19 races, to instead thinking about making hay when the sun shines. Because Aprilia knew that this was an opportunity for them. Qatar's, Aleish Bagro's favourite track, he always goes well there. The bike has had a lot of testing there. This was, as Adam said, eight days of running. And uh, we saw again how good Aprilia were here. You know, Alish was very strong in each of the practice sessions and then in the race was able to come away with one of the best finishes Aprilia's had in terms of d- distance to the race winner.
0: Yeah, I think this is also one of the best uh, best Aprilia finishes in the four stroke era as well. So it's um, they did really well. What the thing is, I am more and more convinced that Aprilia have genuinely made a step, um, in part just because of the way that everything that 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 the. the, 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 the the sea the or well you know the history of this bike. so they made a huge change from 2019 to 2020 very completely different bike, completely different engine, a different v angle. There's, when you do that, you, you know that things are going to go wrong because you know that there are things which you've, uh, you haven't taken into account just because it's impossible to take them into account. Um, the step from 2020 to 2021 was always going to be about evolution. Um, you've got a, a lot of the teething problems are ironed out. Um, and that's exactly what you saw. The Aprilia is much more; uh, it's much more competitive. It's much more consistent, and that allowed Alasia to actually get a result. I think there'll be lots of tracks where it, where they'll still struggle, but um, it's not going to be like last year. It's going to be much, much more consistent.
1: Well, Adam, just to sort of take on what Dave's saying there, do you think is the fact that Davi's going to test the bike? the real indication of the progress they've made because Dobby's not getting on that bike if he thinks it's going to be a lemon. He's obviously not going to just look to do it just for the money as well. He must genuinely think that this is a good bike, good opportunity, and he wants to explore it. He wouldn't have done that a few years ago with brilliant.
3: Yeah, absolutely, Steve. And also, as well as they pointed out, the bikes changed. The team and the personnel behind the scenes have changed. Um, I mean, I have no particular insight as to how Aprilia and, and their uh, management structure is, but you can only imagine those changes have been done for a reason. And perhaps they're starting to bear some fruit. Um, you know, Dobby coming into the bike, I think, is either—I'm pretty sure—he waited into the test to have a look and think. You know, am I going to be onto a hiding to nothing, or you know? it uh, actually might be quite interesting to try this motorcycle. And he's obviously made the positive decision. There were a lot of rumors, uh, you know, throughout the paddock as well that, you know, that could lead to a full-time uh, ride in 2021. Again, if I had to put money on the table, I would say it's not, uh, you know, why would Andre the Vizioso be ho- so hesitant to race and then suddenly throw himself back into the deep end unless he rides the motorcycle and thinks this is sensational. Um, aside from that, Dave thinks, you know, the bike might have changed, um, you know I, that's that's an optimistic view. Uh, you know, obviously, we have to see it on other circuits. Um, Lorenzo Savadori, I think the best thing about his Grand Prix was the dedicatory uh, paint job he had on his helmet. Uh, you know, for Fausto Grassini. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not it's not going to be easy for him. Uh, he's on. Uh, it's it's a very very tough job. But finishing forty six seconds off the race winner shows uh, the you know the the, dif- the difficult role he has in two thousand and twenty one.
0: Uh, the reason that Andrea Dovizioso is testing the bike is because you know that's the only option he's got. Um, uh, that can be an enormous motivation. Like he's not going to get a. Uh, he's been holding out for you know, what if Mark can't come back? Well, Mark Marquez is coming back, and so the Honda, the, the the door at Honda has been closed. Honda have also made it very clear that they have no interest in him in him as a test rider. Um, so basically, he was down down to his option. So maybe he did wait to see the test, to see how the Aprilia was before deciding to actually, you know, test
3: the bike. Perhaps he doesn't um, need an option though, Dave. Uh, you know, it seems he hasn't been particularly, aside from one interview, I can recall, he hasn't been particularly forthcoming about wanting to race or wanting to be a motor GP rider again.
0: No, I mean, uh, as I understand it, and what he said uh, last year again was, you know, I want a competitive option. I'm not going to jump on it. His objective is to win the championship. He wants to come back and try to win the championship. So he's not going to just race for for, for no reason at all. So he needs to have a a competitive option. Obviously, I I don't think the Aprilia is ready to win the championship yet. But, you know, it does look like a much more competitive option than it did, uh, you know, maybe at the end of last year. Uh, and when all the other doors are closed and there's one door open which might offer an opportunity, uh, then you have to take it.
1: Adam, just to ask you a question about davi as well, because obviously he says that he plans to do quite a bit of Italian MX through the course of this year. But we saw him have another big crash on his MX bike this week. He posted a picture, I think, of his helmet with a big crack in it and was saying basically, you know, he had his scans for concussions or whatever and it came back okay. But if if you're if you're getting to that point where you're having crashes like that, and this comes on the back of what happened last year as well, is there going to be that bit of doubt in his mind as well? Where he's saying, "How wise is it for me to try this as a as a full option for the year? Whenever you know, I know I'm a great MotoGP rider, and there's an option on the table to go back. Because at the end of the day, if Dobby goes and tests well and says I want to be on this bike for for racing this season, Apuria is not going to have any hesitation in dropping Savadori back to a test ride and roll and putting Dovi on the bike.
3: That's right, Steve. I mean, uh, there's obviously a budget issue as well. He's not going to come and race for, you know, a, a couple of cans of Red Bull. Um, so it, it's really hard to make a call on Andrea de Vizioso's mindset. But the fact that he kind of did want to dedicate himself to motocross, which, as you pointed out, is not exactly a, an activity without risk, um, says a lot about you know, his willingness to to push to the limits in MotoGP. I mean, he must look at the uh, that race last Sunday and, and the performances of some of the riders and the manufacturers and think, do I really need to jump back in that on a bike I've never ridden uh, with a team I've never worked with, um, you know, and, you know, having not really put myself in a mental or physical space for the better part of three to four months and, and go again. Um, you know, I think... It, as, as everything is about timing and the position and, and the kind of expectation that comes up, we see Valentino Rossi talking in an interview about doing another two years in, in MotoGP and some of the reactions I've seen to those comments are like, well, he's now taking the saddle of younger riders who maybe have more potential to achieve results, certainly in the short term. Um, so you, you kind of think, well, where does Dobby fit in? The Aprilia thing could open up nicely for him where he, he seeks into being like a, uh, a lead rider, a development rider, uh, maybe even like an emblem for, for Aprilia. Uh, but I, I think it's it, I, I still personally would be surprised if he suddenly signs the deal to race the rest of the season. But stranger things have happened to, uh, to voice a cliche. Yeah,
1: of course, he is going to test. Pretty soon at Hereth, and also it looks like a Magello test as well. So he is going to get a good feel for that bike. But we're going to move on from Aprilia and uh, we're going to be. Oh, oh, oh just
2: before up- just before we move on, Steve, sorry, I would just like to include a bit of a nerdy statistic just in case there's anyone that's into that kind of thing. Uh, Alicia Spargo was what, 5.9 seconds off the race winner at the checkered flag. Seventh wasn't actually Aprilia's best result in MotoGP four stroke era. Um, sixth place, I think he scored that three occasions. Colin Edwards scored a sixth place as well back in 2003. Uh, but that was the closest a pretty has ever been to the race winner uh, or the winner of a MotoGP race in the four-stroke era. Um, And the closest it's ever been to a race winner since Jeremy McWilliams, Phillip Island 2000. So how about that?
1: hard to believe that Northern Irishman will give a shout to Jeremy Williams, and uh, Jeremy's still as busy as ever he was actually on my flight over to Spain this week he's obviously still working for KTM as a test rider on their road bike so he's definitely still flat out all the time but uh, Neil I wanted to move on just because we've got, actually still got quite a bit of ground to cover and quite a few questions from our listeners but before we do that I want to just be nice quick hit thoughts on Honda for you, because obviously we saw Paul came very strong during the end of the race. We saw braddle was a little bit further behind him. And then obviously we saw the two lCR bikes crash out and have a pretty tough weekend.
2: Yeah. Um, I think it was, I think that's another reason why, or that basically what you just said reinforced why Sunday was such a good performance by Paul. Esparger. It wasn't just the fact that he was fairly close to the race winner, um, in spite of getting duffed up by join at one point, it was also the fact that the other honda guys had a, a bit of a tough time you know like the lcr guys were never in the running i felt over the weekend um both of them crashed out of the race um but i think in the Spa Girl, they've you know they've got real calls for optimism um and yeah mark must be thinking you know it's a pretty good package that i'm going to come back to if, if spargo is, is just uh, 5.9 seconds off in his first race I think that bodes quite well. So, yeah, I would say there's definitely a reason for optimism uh, in the Honda camp.
1: And uh, we're just going around the houses. So, Adam, it was uh, another weekend where we saw the, the rookies really have a few surprises. Bastianini looked really impressive. We saw Jorge Martin able to go from, I think it was 14 to 4th into the first corner. And then we also had Luke Marini and uh, Lorenzo Savadori just getting themselves up to speed.
3: Yeah, Bastianini for me was the standout performance, Steve. Um, you know, I think Jorge Martin. You know, obviously that fantastic flyer at the start, but then cooked his tyres as you, as you would expect a rookie to do. Um, but Bastianini, uh, I was surprised by that. I mean, it was was strong stuff, steady pace. Uh, it didn't seem to be overawed by the occasion. Uh, maybe we didn't do or give him enough credit in pre season for what he's capable of. But uh, I yeah, did. No. <laughs>
2: Me too. I just like to say I did too.
1: You weren't on. You weren't on the pre season show, Neil. So you can be quiet.
3: Was that one of the podcasts where we named every other rider in our pre Yeah, exactly. Uh, No, but I mean, that that was a fantastic
0: ride by Bastianini. I mean, you know, Martin, yeah, fantastic start up to fourth, but then he goes backwards. He, you know, finishes 15th, so he finishes worse than his starting position. But, you know, Bastianini, that was a proper full ride, managing the tyres to the end of the race, finishes in 10th, superb.
1: Yeah, Martin went back to where his pace had been all weekend. Really, he made a great start, but uh, he ended up where he should have been all along. Really, I thought. Yeah, Bastianini was super impressive, right? To be able to come through and looked like he was able to make the moves nice and clean as well, nice and decisive. And um, Dave, just a question for you as we move around each other. But uh, what was the issue for KTM? Uh,
0: as um, Adam was explaining earlier, basically the front the, the front tire, the soft tire didn't work for them. Uh, they couldn't get, he couldn't use the medium tire. Uh, and the hard only worked during the day. And actually, the hard was pretty good for them during the day. They were much better. They were much more comfortable with the bike during the day. Um, but, you know, that was basically it. They they did not have a front tyre which they could use.
2: It was interesting to hear Olivera say, this is not a problem at our end. This is basically solely down to the tyre allocation. So um, maybe that's a little bit optimistic and that's trying to um, ignore one or two of the flaws, that KTM still has, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think it would be, well, I, I think we always said that it would be a bit silly to write KT, KTM off on the basis of a, a Duff test and a pretty bad first race weekend. Um, but yeah. Um, and, and they weren't a million miles away either, you know, that the race pace was actually pretty good, even though they've been severely limited by this tire allocation. So I think, um, yeah, not, not, not any reason to sign the alarm bells just yet.
1: We've got three questions in from our listeners as well. And luckily enough, we've got three experts as well. But uh, Neil, we're going to start off with you because it's a question about Model 3 And the question from Nathan was just uh, basically a statement. Just how good were Acosta and Guevara this weekend?
2: <laughs> they were very good, Steve. Yes, they were. They were sensational. In fact, um, I think Izan Guevara was the first uh, rookie to uh, get a front row start in the Model 3 class at Rosile. Um, since Scott Redding in 2008. So that was impressive. Um, No, he wasn't.
1: No, he wasn't. He wasn't. Was Fnati not a front row starter to go to the podium? Or was he
2: he from the second row? No, he wasn't. He wasn't, Stevie, I'm afraid to say. Um, Yeah. And I think there's only been three riders previously in history that have got a podium in the first race, which Acosta managed to do. Um, And they're really impressive. And Fanati did
1: I'll at least be right on one thing about Fanati.
2: Uh, of course, that's what you were thinking about, Steve. Yeah, it was the, the podium in the first obviously. race. Obviously.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, but yeah, those those guys hadn't seen the Qatar circuit before the test that was the, the weekend before the first race. So super impressive. Um, you, you obviously saw these guys paddle a lot in the CEV last year. Um, we knew that they were pretty good, um, uh, but I'm not sure that I thought they were going to be this good this uh, early into their careers. So, you know, fair play.
1: Yeah, I have to say, I, I wasn't... I wasn't surprised to see both of them able to get themselves to the front. I thought it was just the maturity of them that really impressed me. And uh, it kind of brings us into Moto2 as well, because obviously, Adam, you're a big fan of Raul Fernandez and his performance did surprise quite a few people. I think in the Moto2 preseason show, we did kind of mention if he's inside the top five, six, it wouldn't be a massive surprise, but it was just how comfortable he was inside the top six.
3: It relates to that, Steve. I think one of the good things, you know, from watching the free practice sessions throughout the weekend um, was how the Rebel Katie and Mayo riders are, are working very much together. Uh, if you watched the Moto3 sessions, then you saw Jaume Masia and also Pedro Acosta very much following each other, using, giving each other a toe. Uh, Masia perhaps even showing Acosta some other lines. And that trans- transferred directly into the race situation. Uh, Fernandez as well profited in Moto2 uh of course you yeah, know he's a talented kid rides the motorcycle I, I just thought you know just harking back to motor 3 uh one of the things that came to mind was how competitive the red bull rookies MotoGP cup is um or i'll try and say this right now the fim CEV junior world championship i did i get it right i did yes you
1: left out the sponsor
3: ah uh, yeah okay um, you know, those series effectively run on, on Moto3 copycat machinery. I mean, it's, has there ever been a time where those championships are breeding riders, you know, prepared directly for the challenges of Moto3? Um, you know, it's, 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 it's a fantastic stepping stone and we're seeing riders very quickly catch on to Grand Prix racecraft and speed. It's, it was, um, Acosta's, uh, obviously here to stay.
1: Yeah, and I think that was one of the things that was interesting for me whenever we were looking in the build-up to this season was just how much experience some of those guys actually have on Grand Prix machinery. It might have been in the Junior World Championship or it might be in the World Championship, but a lot of them have six, seven years on Moto3 machinery. And that definitely does help you build yourself up nicely. And David, just a question for you as well. It came in from Lloyd Basto, and uh, he was asking about Digia because we saw from Fabio at the end of that race just how impressive he was. He was able to make lovely, clean moves and he was able to get himself up into third position as well at the end, Dave.
0: Yeah, it was a fantastic pass. It was a fantastic. Also a very emotional um, uh, pass as well. You know, it was just what the team needed um, after Fausto's tragic death, so uh, yeah, a superb ride by Digia. Um, a really, really uh, mature. Um, a, a very strong, uh, very strong ride. Also, I mean, to come back to Ralph Ra- Fernandez, what impressed me about Ralph Fernandez was the fact that the step from Moto 3 to Moto 2 is really, really big. It's much bigger than from Moto 2 to Moto GP. So, uh, for Fernandez to get on a Motor 2 bike and be that competitive that early, just
1: really impressive. And uh, just to finish off as well, boys, who was your big winners and losers from the weekend? Neil, what about you? Who was your big winner?
2: Uh, winner has to be Zarko, uh, Best Ducati, um, for reasons I think we've mentioned in this show. Um, and loser, I would have to say, was Jack Miller, just because I had him down as a favourite noise pace. Wasn't always going to be uh, maybe the strongest, but I thought... Miller would have the sort of the bike and the package to do something like David had done in previous years and, and kind of uh, manipulate the race to his own means. But, um, yeah, it was, it was tough for him and tough for him to explain exactly what happened. He couldn't quite put his finger on
0: it. What about you, David? Um, well, for me, I think the big winner is, uh, is Joan Mir because he came through, you know, he came good on the day. Uh, which is exactly what he needed to do. He nearly took second place. Um, they found something to fix the bike. Uh, all of these things put together, you know, he's got a good point haul to start his championship defence off. It's a long year, um, so he's he's in a really good place to actually defend the championship. He showed that he can. Uh, he showed that he was in charge of the championship. I felt. Um, so yeah, that was really really good. Uh, as for loser, I mean, you know, hard to look past Franco Morbidelli because through no fault of his own. Um, he ends up with a dodgy bike. Um, the, it, it, he has a technical issue, and he's ruled out of contention. And that's a huge blow to his, uh, to, you know, to, to the
3: start of his championship. What about you, Ad? Um, well, I mean, Maverick has started the weekend without a crew chief. Uh, I mean, at the moment, he's like he, it's like he's wandered onto the stage and he's just beginning his magic trick. And it remains to see be seen whether he pulls the rabbit out of the hat or the rabbit's done a runner. Um, but I would say for winner, I agree with Dave Juan Mir. I think that was a big statement against uh, the Ducatis, even though they pipped him at the end. Um, you know, I really want to see what he can sort out for next Sunday, uh, the Sunday coming and, uh, for loser, uh, poor old Danilo Petrucci. Uh, it wasn't like the, I think he even said after the race, it was probably the worst sort of KTN debut, debut he can imagine. I mean, all that work through the, for the better part of two and a half days. And it was over after two corners um you know just through contact not through any particular technical problem so um you know his first taste of the rc16 is probably on the most difficult track for the bike of course MotoGP didn't race there last year so uh, the ktms didn't get a chance to sort out any issues they had at that particular circuit um so danilo will get better days on the ktm i'm sure
1: yeah, and I think for me, it's it's quite difficult to to argue with really any of your choices. And uh, I think for me, the big winner, I'll go with Vinales because it was such a good ride. It was, like I said at the top of the show, something that we've waited for a long time to see Maverick ride like that again. So, especially whenever you take into account the fact that, like, I'd, like you said, he's had such a difficult weekend. It made it a fairly easy one for me to pick him as my big winner. I want to take Jack Miller as my big loser because we had such a high level of expectation for him. It didn't pan out and now he needs to bounce back in the second Qatar race. But for my big loser, I'm actually going to pick Valentino Rossi because what was probably the worst thing that happened to him all weekend was getting the toe in the suit in the qualifying session because it suddenly puts him on to the second row of the grid. It gives an unrealistic expectation compared to where his pace had been all the way through the weekend. And then when the race started, he just went back to field. So for me, it I, I was another one of those weekends where it was a bit disappointing a bit like what happened in f 1 last year so it'll be interesting to see what happens to Rossi whenever we come back in a week's time to see if he's able to make any progress but uh, that uh, brings us to a, a close on this uh, opening uh, round of the year really and uh, Neil you've obviously got another couple of days left in the desert before we get into the second round and uh, your hotel room it must just be really appealing because you haven't really left it
2: I've been going to the gym every day, Stephen. must say. Um, there's also a buffet that's open to us three times a day. Um, as a man that has uh, stayed in some of the shittest hotels that you could ever imagine, uh, this is quite a change of scenery for me. So I'm not complaining. Yes, we're locked in our hotel, but uh, you won't hear me complaining.
1: Yeah, I've definitely stayed in quite a few of those kind of hotels with you over the years. Dave, what about you? You've obviously got another couple of days before we get ready to do it all again.
0: Uh, Yeah, exactly. Just, um, uh, I mean, the the nice thing about being at home is I get out to to cycle. It was a lovely day to (coughs) go out cycling today. I don't think it's going to be lovely to go out cycling tomorrow. It's going to get cold and wet. So um, uh, it'll be lots of uh, uh, Adam's uh, uh, favourite pastime, which is Zoom meetings.
1: Lovely stuff. Adam, what about you? What's the next couple of days planned?
3: Well, apart from the invigorating experience of talking to people via screen uh i've got a i've got a lingering deadline steve so the new issue on track off road will be online tomorrow wednesday uh, aside from that try and have some time off before the next race and i did actually confirm to dawn today that i'll be going to her because uh, they're obviously asking journalists now um who's going to what races um you know Mau first european race but then in uh, spain round four so uh yes looking forward to actually hearing and seeing some motorcycles in the flesh yeah
1: that's gonna be good ad and uh yeah I'm, I'm out here in barcelona at the minute just for the world Superbike test and so tomorrow well is whenever we get to see the bikes on track for the first time and uh, it's gonna be good to see what's changed in the paddock over the course of the winter and see where everyone stacks up so i'm quite keen a bit like you had to be able to get bikes back on track and see that i'm sorry and, not uh, to
3: uh, be there to see you steve we're up in the pyrenees at the moment so we're a little bit far away um and also having to close a hundred and sixty-page magazine means uh, having to miss some superbike action, which was a bit disappointing.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I better really get tapping away and send you over my blog for the month issue as well. But uh, I'm sure you'll get it just in time for deadline. And uh, just to say a big thank you to all of our patrons that support the podcast, it really does make a big difference at patreon.com forward slash paddockpasspodcast because that support means that we're able to put out lots of additional content to it. really helped us get out as much pre-season content as possible. Moto 3 season preview, Moto 2 season preview, and then the GP season preview at Simon Crayfar as well. So that support does make a massive difference. We've got lots of new content on Patreon as well. We've got Paddock Pass Podcast Extra, which is a show for all of our Patreon supporters. And we also have the Paddock Notes special during the course of a race weekend as well this year that's for our paddock insiders on patreon.com forward slash paddock podcast so for myself steve english from neil morrison adam wheeler and david emmett big thank you for listening to this week's paddock pass podcast presented by fly racing this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler it was edited
0: by brian burnett music is provided by the Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.